Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Phenomenal. See, this difference between Black Star Network and Black-owned media and something like CNN. You can't be Black-owned media and be skate. It's time to be smart. Bring your eyeballs home. You dig? Thursday, March 3rd, 2022, coming up on Roland Martin Unfiltered right here on the Black Star Network. The Supreme Court is set to hear Alabama's uh, court, uh, first of all, their uh, gerrymandering case next term and will put the Voting Rights Act once again in the hands of conservatives on the high court. And we'll talk with an official with the Brennan Center for Justice about how significant this case is. A Kentucky jury finds the only police officer charged in the raid that killed Breonna Taylor, not guilty for endangering people in another apartment. The family of a Texas man killed by police last month says the nine officers in mostly unmarked cars and wearing plain clothes never identified themselves before they opened fire on Charian Lockett. The family attorney will tell us why they believe 27-year-old was ambushed. The 12-year-old Philadelphia boy gets shot in the back by police officers. Yeah, plainclothes police officers not wearing body cameras. And two Georgia officers plead not guilty for killing a black man who was shot 76 times. And in Mississippi, police knew a three-month-old was in the car before they unleashed barrage of bullets to stop a murder suspect. Vice President Kamala Harris made a trip to Durham, North Carolina to highlight the Biden administration's plan to strengthen the economy and raise the quality of life for the working class. We also have uh, a lot more, and we'll, we'll talk further about President Joe Biden calling for the fund the police. Mm, is that going to actually bode well for November? It's time to bring the funk on Roland Martin Unfiltered on the Black Star Network. Let's go. He's got it. Whatever the miss, he's on it. 
Folks, a few moments ago, some breaking news. The state Supreme Court in Wisconsin, uh, they affirmed a uh, map that was put forth by the Democratic governor ignoring, in a 4-3 ruling, ignoring the maps put forward by Republicans. This is the latest victory Democrats have seen in state courts in Pennsylvania, in Ohio, as well as North Carolina. Yet, there's a case in Alabama that the Supreme Court decided to take up. Now, you might remember when that came up, uh, the, uh, the uh, federal court ruled that uh, African-Americans were indeed being disenfranchised there in Alabama. They should have been getting a second majority black district. All of a sudden, the Supreme Court says, mm, we're going to now take this case up. The high court suspended the lower court ruling, again, that would, would, would have required lawmakers to redraw the maps there in Alabama because they discriminated against black voters and violated the Voting Rights Act. So the question is, what is now going to happen? Why did the Supreme Court weigh into this? Joining me now is from New York City is Michael Lee, senior counsel for the Brennan Center. Uh, Michael, glad to have you uh, on the show. So here's what, 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 what is strange, that, that Supreme Court decides to wade into this. Now, the previous court uh, under J Justice John Roberts said, oh, uh, political gerrymandering, we don't have any role in that. that. That's really left up to the states. But now they're weighing into this uh, when the courts rule that if you look at the sheer numbers, there should not be only one black member of Congress from Alabama. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's, a, it's, it's going to be a critical test of what the Voting Rights Act means and whether it offers real protections because if the Voting Rights Act doesn't apply under the facts and circumstances of Alabama, you know, given the stark history of Alabama, given the numbers that you've talked about in Alabama, black voters are about 27% of the population of Alabama. They were liked only in one out of seven districts. If you had two black districts, that would be 28% of the districts. So, you know, proportional to the share of the black population of Alabama. And it really is pretty easy to draw a second black district in Alabama. You just sort of go across the black belt. Um, which is an area that has hundreds of years of shared history and, and shared experience of segregation, discrimination, um, you know, even going back to slavery. Um, you know, this is a, it's, it's really not hard to create a second black district in Alabama. And yet if, if it doesn't apply, if the Voting Rights Act has no teeth in Alabama, it really doesn't apply anywhere. And I think you know, there's a lot of concern among advocates that the Supreme Court is about to sort of gut what remains of the Voting Rights Act. You know, they've been taking big bites and small bites out of it for years, but this really could be the, the death knell of the Voting Rights Act and really open the door to you know, wholesale discrimination even more than we, we've had. And, and this is one of the reasons why uh, folks uh, were demanding the For the People Act and the John Lewis Act. And of course, you had two Democratic senators standing in the way, not wanting to get rid of the filibuster. And so uh, you have these Republicans all across the country who want to desperately get rid of the Voting Rights Act because they did not want any federal oversight. I mean, after that Shelby v. v, v Holder decision, I mean, these southern states, they raced to change, closing polling locations, uh, changing districts, redrawing lines. Uh, they could not wait uh, to make these changes. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, and of course, Shelby County versus Holder is a case out of Alabama. <laughs> so, like, Alabama is, you know, itself managing to do a lot of damage to 
the, the Voting Rights Act, but you know, literally how crazy the Alabama case is. It, it basically argues that you can't draw a, a second black district if you if you can't comply with all of the state's quote unquote race neutral rules when, and, and draw a second black district, then there is, you can't have no liability for a black district. And, and that's just like opens a door to states adopting all kinds of crazy rules that are quote unquote race neutral. And then arguing that, you know, oh, well, you, we couldn't draw a Latino district, we couldn't draw a black district because we couldn't have circular district. And your, your, your race neutral rule requires that districts be circles. And like, that is how extreme it is. It's really sort of a state's rights version of the Voting Rights Act, where state law trumps federal law, even though, you know, of course, under the Constitution, federal law <laughs> trumps state law. And so it, it really is very wide, um, wide sweeping. But unfortunately, this is a Supreme Court that seems intent on reexamining the way that race is used in American society. It took the affirmative action cases, which you will hear in October. And my understanding is that the Alabama redistricting case likely also will be heard in October. So a lot of race at the Supreme Court um, coming up next term. And, you know, the Supreme Court, of course, is very different uh, than it was just even a few years ago. And so we will see how much damage they, they will do, not only on race and redistricting, but race in American society generally. You know, and, and look, uh, this weekend is the 57th anniversary of Bloody Sunday. Uh, and, and Vice President Kamala Harris is going to be down there. Many civil rights activists are going to be down there. Uh, there are folks who are also uh, going to be, uh, they're going to be, um, uh, you know, uh, doing the march from Selma to Montgomery, uh, taking place all next week. And, and one of the things that we witnessed during the last decade or so of Congressman John Lewis's life, we saw all of these Republicans travel with him uh, to Alabama and all oh, they would be taking pictures and be so happy. And I remember seeing them there for, for Selma 50th. And, you know, you had then Senator Jeff Sessions and you had Senator um, uh, Tim Scott of South Carolina. And, 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 and I kept saying... Uh, I said, Selma, don't allow these people to come down here again for a damn field trip and some photo ops because they will come down and come right back and then do all they could uh, to gut the Voting Rights Act. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, um, you know, it, it, it's really quite remarkable you know, how um, hypocritical people can be on a lot of this, right? Because, you know, you know, if, if they're going to talk the talk, they've got to walk the walk. And, you know, so far in Congress, people aren't walking the walk. Um, you know, in fact, you know, you know, the Voting Rights Act, when it was Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, when it was last renewed in 2006, it passed um, almost unanimously, you know, in, in the Congress. And yet, um, you know, with, and with the support of, of President George W. Bush, and yet, you know, um, when the Freedom to Vote John Lewis Act came up that would have like strengthened the Voting Rights Act in really critical ways, um, you know, it was really hard to get Republican votes. I think there, there, you know, the, the John Lewis Act had like some, like Senator Murkowski supporting it at one point in the Senate, but not a single Republican voted for it um, when it was the Freedom to Vote John Lewis Act. Um, and, and, and that is really remarkable. It tells you where our country has come. You know, I think, you know, in part because like the country is getting more diverse, like, you know, people of color provided 100% of the population growth last decade. And I think that that growth of the rising power of communities of color, I think, scares a lot of people. Um, and the modern day Republican Party um, is, is very, you know, they, you know, they don't know what to do. All right, then, uh, Michael Lee with the Brennan Center. We certainly appreciate it. Uh, Y'all, they're one of the groups on the front lines uh, fighting against this, and so the battle continues.
All right, folks, uh, let's uh, go to our, our panel here. Reese Colbert, founder of Black Women Views, Dr. Greg Carr with the Department of Afro-American Studies at Howard University. Also joining us uh, is Dr. Larry Walker, assistant professor, University of Central Florida. Uh, I started off talking about uh, the case uh, out of um, out of Wisconsin, where the state Supreme Court uh, has supported uh, Governor, the maps of Governor Tony Evers, who is a Democrat, a four to three decision. Uh, Republicans have a majority of the, the Wisconsin State Supreme Court. Uh, and uh, I'm sure we're going to hear another uh, whiny tweet from uh, Chris Christie. Uh, he, of course, is uh, co-chairing the Republicans' efforts on redistricting. Uh, he probably is going to be uh, mad, upset uh, at uh, former Attorney General Eric Holder, who's leading uh, effort on behalf of the Democrats. Uh, but what we are seeing here, we are seeing naked partisanship uh, and we're seeing uh, racist efforts on behalf of white Republicans, Reese, to try to uh, do all they can to thwart the advancement of African-Americans when it comes to voting. Absolutely. I mean, the Republicans are fully aware that the only path that they have to continue to be in power is through gerrymandering and voter suppression. And so I applaud the Democrats in every opportunity they have, push the envelope with your ability to gerrymander. It's political gerrymandering, which is not the same thing as racial gerrymandering. Um, and, uh, you know, get those seats back because the only reason why the, the House isn't completely out of question of staying in Democratic hands is because of lawmakers in New York and California and places like Wisconsin that have very aggressive, and Illinois, that have very aggressive maps. And so as long as, you know, they can pass the muster of even Republican tilted state courts, then I think we're going to be in much better shape than we would otherwise be. You know, the, the, th the thing here, Greg, when we start, you know, when we look at, we look at what's, what's happening here, uh, it, 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 was, it was very, um, very interesting. You had some Democratic consultants who were saying that, oh, this strategy of Holder and attorney Mark Elias uh, and Black Voters Matter and the NAACP Legal Defense Fund and uh, Brennan Center, Center and the Advancement Project uh, and Lawrence Committee for Civil Rights under law, you know, Transforming Justice Coalition, all these folks, oh, you know what, you, you, you know, you, you, you guys shouldn't do this. You're actually pushing it too far. Uh, yeah, you see what happens when you fight. You see what happens when you play hardball. You see what happens when you don't cower into the corner and hoping from incremental change. They literally have gained victories in states where even Republicans hold the majority on the state Supreme Court. Uh, and so, uh, again, the battle has to be waged. And I think, you know, I just finished reading uh, Will Haygood's book uh, on, um, uh, on Thurgood Marshall, uh, on, on the confirmation hearing, showdown, and, and reading those cases uh, and reading how black folks in Texas uh, fought uh, the uh, whites-only primaries and how, how they, they challenged them and how African-Americans, these are people, this is, this is, these are people in the, in the 1930s raised nearly $200,000 to fund the lawyers to fight these cases and, and how, they, how they attacked Jim Crow. Folk today gotta have the same sense of urgency because on the right, they know exactly what they're doing and they will do whatever they can to gain an upper hand. Yes, sir. They absolutely will. And as you say, the heroes of Texas in the 30s and 40s, Dr. Nixon, Herndon, in Alabama, uh, of course, the famous case around Tuskegee, um, where you see a medical doctor coming into 
the fray, a black medical doctor in Tuskegee with the ridiculous, absurd, I forget it was like 64-sided district that they had drawn that literally excluded all the black voters. So Dr. Gamillion jumps in. Um, But the circumstances, I think, have changed since then. And this is what the Democrats don't understand, or perhaps they do and don't care. There's no such thing as a democracy in this country. This isn't partisanship. This is white nationalism. These white nationalists are playing for all the marbles. In the 20s and 30s, when the white nationalist party was located in the democratic apparatus, you at least had a bench that had some respect for the idea of constitutional law as a means to an end. Uh, There was regional conflict around white supremacy and white nationalism. The United States was becoming a global power. But after World War II, Uh, you see the white nationalist power begins to wane. And it's really after World War II, between 1945 and 20 years later, 1965, just as those countries in Africa and the Caribbean are fighting to get out from under white supremacy, here domestically, people of African descent make their power thrust. And since 1965, the white nationalists have been clawing desperately to get back in the game. And here's where Democrats are making their fundamental mistake. They think there are rules. There are no stinking rules. So when, recently when you say that, you're absolutely right. There, in terms of constitutional law, what the Supreme Court has decided over the last decade or so, that there is no difference between political, politically, uh, uh, politically justified or politically motivated gerrymander and racial gerrymander. They have destroyed the concept of using race. When they say race neutral, when they say uh, colorblind, what they mean is white. That is that, that's mm. code speak for white. So when you exclude all the voters and say we did it because it's political and the Supreme Court says that's okay, what they've done is say we're going to take race out. And finally, they are angling now. The You asked the brother the question and he ain't really quite answered because I believe he believes in constitutional democracy as well. And that's kind of unfortunate because these lawyers don't understand, except the ones who are fighting, that there are no rules. When you asked him what they're, they're going to try to get rid of the, the Voting Rights Act, and he said, yeah, looks like they're going to, if they do, if they do, do you please understand? This is the apartheid case. This is what they've been building for for 50 years. When they get the number, they're going to run a Boston. Look at Shaw versus Reno in North Carolina. Look at Georgia versus Ascross in Georgia, where the question on the table was, the court had to decide, is it more important to have black political representation in the form of a black face in a majority black district, or do you spread them out over multiple districts. This is the football they've been kicking back and forth for 30 years. And now that they have the numbers to run the Boston, they're just going to straight create an apartheid government. Damn the Voting Rights Act. You know, the thing that uh, we see here, uh, uh, Larry, uh, as, we, um, as, we, as we break all of this down, is that um, the reason they're playing for keeps here you, you take uh, also in Georgia, federal judge rule that the map that was drawn there um, has to stay in place because it's too late to change it because you have primaries in May, which is crazy because it's March 2nd, it's 60 days. Uh, you can actually get it done. But what's interesting is the judge said, yeah, it was likely discrimination against black people. I mean, so you're sitting here going... So let's just go ahead and have an election. Yeah, you're likely to discriminate against black people. But let's go ahead and have an election, and that person's going to be locked in for two years, and then, oh, let's hopefully we can change it in the next two years. They want to lock this in for the next decade mm-hmm. before the next census gets taken place. 
you know, Roland, you know, you know, Dr. Carr, basically it's all hands on deck. Uh, and that's the bottom line. And, you know, you talked about the, you know, judges uh, ruling. Um, and listen, you know, and Dr. Carr talked about this. Democrats have to have to have to be super aggressive. And I think, that, you know, you highlighted what happened in Wisconsin. This is great. But, you know, it, it, time's time's ticking. You know, when LBJ signed the Voting Rights Act the day after the Republican Party was prepared for the, what we see today. Right. So this is decades in the making, as uh, Reese and Dr. Carr talked about. And we really have to be continue to be very aggressive. And I commend um, Eric Holder and his associates for doing doing God's work. But if we don't have a hall hands on deck in terms of the Democratic Party, um, then we will experience essentially is the new Jim Crow. Um, and we see it in the terms of some of the gerrymandering and some of the voter suppression laws throughout the United States. And if Democrats think playing to centrist, um, you know, individuals that follow themselves in the middle, then I can tell you right now that we're going to be in big trouble come this November and then in two years when we uh, presidential election. You know, but this is the thing here. Um, this this is the thing here. Uh, Reese, where, and I know all boy, black folks don't, they can't stand it if you say anything negative about Obama. <laughs> but this right here is what, this on this issue here was one of the greatest screw-ups of President Barack Obama. He didn't give a damn about the Democratic National Committee. They lost more than a thousand seats on the state, local and state level during his presidency. And they were not paying attention to this very issue, the battle that was going on. Yeah, yeah, they, they, they were fighting, you know, Shelby Beholder in the Supreme Court. Uh, they were fighting, you know, different cases. But they did not properly understand nor use the apparatus of the party to do battle and so, really, the work right now, you know, because he's working with, with Holder on this redistricting thing, really, it's trying to play catch-up. This is right. why you have to use power when you have it. Absolutely. And I think the problem that Democrats have is Democrats play to win a news cycle. Republicans play for keeps. To win a generation. Play, exactly. For a decade. And so what Democrats have to stop doing is they stop. They have to stop trying to placate the media. They have to stop trying to placate different factions of social media critics, Twitter, all that kind of stuff. And I say that as a social media Twitter critic, okay? But I try to help y'all more than I try to criticize y'all. But, you know, th they have to start playing hardball and start realizing that you, even if you lose a news cycle... You're going to win if you manage to stay on message, if you manage to be ruthless, if you manage to play hardball, and if you manage to realize that you're not playing by the same set or you should not be playing by the rules that the Republicans set because they're going to change them as soon as it benefits them. So they need to stiffen their spines and they need to be disciplined and they need to really do a much better job of explaining what's at stake here. You know, Hillary Clinton was mocked roundly for talking about the importance of the courts, you know, and we still do not do an adequate job of messaging why the courts are so important. And so that's why we continue to lose ground, not just in terms of the federal level, but also at the state level and the local level. As I've said before on this show, Republicans are playing for the school boards. They're playing for the uh, council positions. 
They're playing for state positions, attorney generals, secretaries of states, governors. They are leaving no stone unturned. And we're sitting up here arguing and debating about sloganeering. We're, 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 we're throwing tantrums over specific pieces of legislation that haven't passed. And we're dropping the ball on every level because our focus is just not there and our and our galvanization is just not there, despite how deplorable the Republicans are acting and despite the fact the Republicans are making it very clear that they want to enshrine second-class citizenship for us. And they're going to be a step closer in 2022 if we don't do what we have to do to stop them. And I know people are sick of hearing it. I know they're sick of hearing outvote the opponents. But I don't see any other alternative unless you want to go the Dr. Carr way. <laughs> and I'd rather go the voting way. Let's just put it like that. I know that's very lazy of me. And that's not revolutionary of me. But we only have two ways out of this. And one way, maybe it will work, maybe it won't. But at least it's free and it's not violent at this point, is voting. All right, folks, uh, got to go to a break. Uh, when we come back, uh, we're going to uh, break down what is happening on the battle to get, get uh, Judge Katanji Jackson Brown on Supreme Court. Now, you know the races do what they do, and white supremacist Tucker Carlson doing what he also does. Maybe that should be a crazy as white people segment. Uh, also, of course, we'll talk about uh, policing in the country, uh, what is happening there. Uh, it's, it's just, it's, again, so much more that is actually taking place when we talk about these cases and how police uh, still are not doing uh, what they should be doing uh, when it comes to uh, our kids, when it comes to protecting our people. So we're gonna break down all of that next right here on Roller Martin Unfiltered on the Black Star Network. you think it's time to get wealthy? I'm Deborah Owens, America's Wealth Coach, and my new show on the Black Star Network focuses on the things your financial advisor or bank isn't telling you. So watch Get Wealthy on the Black Star Network. up a chair take your seat the black tape with me dr greg carr here on the black star network every week we'll take a deeper dive into the world we're living in join the conversation only on the black star network hi i'm vivian green hey everybody this is your man fred hammond and you're watching roland martin my man unfiltered 
Now, we all know that uh, the leader when it comes to white nationalism in America and leading the issue of white fear is Fox News. Just, just the reality. And, and that's just, you know, in terms of what uh, they are. And, and, and folks, you got to understand that this is nothing new. I mean, the Republican Party, they know doggone well uh, how, for a long time how they've been operating and in terms of if it, it is all about whiteness. We, we've seen that. We know that. Uh, and, and what you're seeing right now is a continuation of that. In fact, someone actually had posted this uh, on uh, Twitter. Give me one second. Don't pull it up yet. Uh, I thought this was pretty interesting uh, when I saw this. Uh, and it, uh, the, the article, go right to it now, says, this is from 1965. Jack Germond wrote this piece. GOP seeks to change white man's party image. That was 1965. Well, clearly not a damn thing has changed since then. So uh, this is uh, Little Tucker uh, last night uh, actually tossing this out, which is utterly hilarious when you actually talk to people who don't really focus on the LSAT. Listen to this. So is Kentangi Brown Jackson, a name that even Joe Biden has trouble pronouncing, one of the top legal minds in the entire country? We certainly hope so. Biden's right. Appointing her is one of his gravest constitutional duties. So it might be time for Joe Biden to let us know what Kentangi Brown Jackson's LSAT score was. What hell is she doing the LSATs? Why wouldn't he tell us that? That would settle the question conclusively as to whether she's a once-in-a-generation legal talent the next learned hand. It would seem like Americans in a democracy have a right to know that and much more before giving her a lifetime appointment, but we didn't hear that. See, it's always hilarious when white folks go to the test. First of all, uh, little Tucker, uh, who says, ooh, release her LSAT, and that's going to settle, settle it in terms of issue of bright legal mind. Um... I think she finished magna cum laude from Harvard. It's a good bet. She's kind of smart. But you know, Greg, here's the other deal. No one's legal mind is based on how they did on an LSAT. It's kind of what you did after law school. It's kind of what you did in the law firms you work with, uh, when you were a judge, when you were on the sentencing commission. But people need to understand, and we get it, this is what black people have to deal with when you have mediocre white men like Tucker Carlson who love to want to challenge black people in this way. And people need to understand, this is, Tucker Carlson is the kind of white person who hurt Clarence Thomas's feelings so much when he was called an affirmative action uh, recruit at Holy Cross and then at Yale. And that's why to this day, he has such disdain from affirmative action because frankly, Clarence Thomas didn't have enough self-esteem to go tell someone like Tucker Carlson to go to hell. Absolutely. And Clarence Thomas, to be fair to Clarence Thomas is a, is a mediocre at best intellect, intellect in the first place. Uh, he is as close as you're going to get to affirmative action in a white nationalist world. Uh, he was absolutely an affirmative action hire when he was put on the Supreme Court. And in the moment when those white men uh, were deciding 
to throw Anita Faye Hill and the other sisters under the bus, when he felt just a little pressure, he sat there and said, this is a high-tech lynching. So he hid behind race. So Clarence Thomas, of course, who is so far, so so beneath contempt that he's almost not worth mentioning, uh, certainly is, is an example of affirmative action on the white nationalist side. And, 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 uh, and, and Lil Tuck, uh, who uh, I wonder if this obsession with black women, whether it be Michelle Obama, Vice President Harris, Kamala Harris, uh, whether it be Ilhan Omar. I mean, I wonder if it's from the same place that many times we see white male obsession with black women uh, it comes from, which is a secret desire. But um, that notwithstanding, uh, you first, Lil Tuck, you first. Oh, wait, you didn't go to law school, so you never took the LSAT. Okay, well, what about your SAT scores? Wait, oh, wait. <laughs> how exactly did you get into Trinity College? Oh, yeah, you you told Columbia, uh, Review, law, uh, Columbia Journalism Review that you spent most of your time undergrad drunk. And then uh, when you applied to CIA and got rejected, your daddy told you, and you'll appreciate this role as a journalist for whom this will never be true, Your daddy, his daddy told uh, 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 young Tuck, uh, why don't you go into journalism? Because they'll take anybody. <laughs> and then he got his first job at the Policy Review, and he said he told the Columbia folk that the standards were so low that uh, he could get a job there. He is the embodiment of affirmative action, which is white male economic privilege. Now, that haven't been said. He knows that. Now we have three, no, actually seven more letters to add to the assault, this anti-black racism, because, of course, we know that Tucker Carlson is the weekly, is the nightly source of white nationalist talking points in the world. Uh, he has added KBJ. He has added LSAT to CRT. This is nothing but politics. And so, yeah, I just, I, I'll end with that for now because uh, I enjoy uh, those clips of Tucker Carlson because it's the only time I get to see him. He's clan. He's clan. And, and, He's... The, and, and the thing, Larry, and, and this is really uh, how we have to learn to uh, fortify uh, black folks. Um, I don't get bent out of shape when mediocre white men like Tucker Carlson say stuff like this because that's what they've always done. And see, they think that, ooh, if I call the black person the affirmative action hire, again, they think we're all like Clarence Thomas. They think we have low self-esteem. Man, white boys tried that at Texas A&M, and this is exactly how I responded. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Y'all think I give a damn what y'all think? I mean, it's simple as that. Look, I, I, I work with mediocre white people, especially white men when I was at CNN. And I would sit there, they would be in the newsrooms, and I, would, we would, we, I remember we were discussing the education segment once, and I said, uh, it was some Supreme Court ruling deal with busing. I said, let's, let's book F Floyd Flake uh, on the show. Someone said, who's Floyd Flake? And I said, I'm sorry, you're a producer for CNN in New York and you don't know Floyd Flake, former Congressman Floyd Flake, Reverend Floyd Flake. I said, President Wilberforce University, Floyd Flake. I'm like, who the hell do y'all know? And see, that's the reality. And we have to get black, black folks to understand this is the game they're going to play, and they're going to try to, try to find those buttons to push, and then that's, and which, which is, and let me be real clear, which is why, yes, it pisses me off that Biden had to step out there and talk about how the Fraternal Order of Police 
is backing Brown. Uh, see, again, it's the, it's the, and, and again, I didn't feel as if she needed to say, even in her own speech, that, oh, I have an uncle who got That's caught right. up in the drug, uh, 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 drug trade and is in life in prison. Oh, but I also have family members who are in law enforcement. I'm not explaining shit to these people. And that's the thing. They want us to always qualify ourselves to make them comfortable. I'm just not in... in, in I have no interest whatsoever in making mediocre white people comfortable in their racism. Yeah, let me tell you something, Roland. I'm not explaining to anyone, to anyone anything about my credentials or the work I've put in, uh, late nights, et cetera. And let's kind of, first of all, let's talk a little bit about this mention of LSAT for a second in, in the history of standardized testing in the United States, which is based in, 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 in racism, right? It's created, basically created more barriers to prevent black people and other minoritized groups from getting an opportunity. So let's first of all talk about standardized testing. Second of all, this idea that George Jackson is not qualified and asking about LSAT is like if Patrick Mahomes, who you know, obviously won a Super Bowl, et cetera, you ask him about his high school stats, right? It doesn't make any sense. But once again, you know, black women in particular have to deal with these racial stereotypes. And if we want to talk about, once again, this idea about asking about somebody's academic credentials, President Obama heard the same thing about, you know, what, it, what, it, what his grades look like in the undergrad and law school, right? So once again, these are echoes of things that we've dealt with for the last several years. And you're right, you know, black folks shouldn't have to explain them, explain individuals about their credentials. Juris Jackson's credentials speak for themselves. She's highly qualified. We know that. And this is the same game that we've played for, for decades in this country. And listen, I believe she's going to get confirmed. She should be confirmed. She's highly qualified. And when I looked at other members of the Supreme Court, her qualifications far exceed many of them. So this idea, once again, we're going to play this game uh, with a lot of these racial tropes about um, black people, particularly black women. As a black as a black community, we're not going to have it. We're going to support her nomination, and I look forward to her confirmation. See the thing, Reese, and 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 I, I want and I saw an essay the other day on this, and I actually agreed with it. And and I want black people listening to me to, to be to really listen. And that is, when we talk about we have to be twice as good. We all, we all heard that. But the thing that I want us to be real careful about, and that is this, 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 this notion that we have to present this above average excellence and, and, and we have to show folks that we are so exceptional and what it ends up happening is, and again, I need people listening to really and watching to understand what I'm talking about. What it ends up happening is, is that we overcompensate to make them comfortable with who we are. I remember reading a story, um, it was an Associated Press story, and these black men were talking about how they had to change how they talked and how they operated uh, in the workplace. One of them talked about how when they would, they would always keep a copy of the Wall Street Journal with them when hailing a cab. And they would hold up the Wall Street Journal 
And so if the white people who were around them saw them holding up the Wall Street Journal, those white people would then go, oh, he's not one of them. And Peter Bino, um, Peter's like a $2,000 an hour attorney, a, used to be a minority owner of the Denver Nuggets basketball team. Peter told me this great story. He was on the plane, he was sitting in first class, and, and Peter's like 5'4", maybe. And Peter tells me this story, he was, play, he was playing golf. Excuse me, I'm sorry, Peter and I have played golf together. He's on the plane, and so white guy goes, well, you're not tall enough to play basketball. And you're not big enough to play football, so what do you do to sit in first class? And Peter, without missing a beat, says, I'm the biggest drug dealer in Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> and then crossed his legs and opened his newspaper. <laughs> that's right, Peter. I mean, you know, I mean that's... And, 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 and for, for a lot of us, we walk around with this, you know, I've, I've, got, I've, got, to, got, to, I've got to prove to them. I, I ain't proving shit to them. I'm not going through all that. You know, I, first of all, I would be embarrassed to admit that goofy shit about the Wall Street Journal. Like, uh, just keep that to yourself next time, okay? Or do it anonymously. But here's the thing. We don't have to perform our worth for white people. We have power in our presence. The fact that we're there already got them shook. The notion of us being there even before one of us is named for that position is enough to get them shook. So why should I perform my worth for you? Who the fuck are you? Tuckums, Tucker Carlson. Why the hell does Katanji Brown Jackson have to answer to you? Who the fuck are you? She doesn't have to release her scores. I could run down the difference in her education versus his, but I'm not even going to to perpetuate elitist talking points. Because at the end of the day, the value doesn't come in these specific degrees and the magna cum laude and the cum laude and all that kind of stuff. You know, it helps. You have to have that if you want to ascend to the position that she's ascended to. But we're not going to even engage on that level. The fact of the matter is she's there. And that's why you're mad. It don't matter what she has on her resume or what you believe she doesn't have or what you think is hiding somewhere in the background. She's there. And that's why you're mad. And the only energy we need to have is stay mad bitches energy. Okay? And happy, happy Women's History Month. We just came off of Black History Month and she about to own Women's History Month. And all you white supremacists out there that got your knickers in a bunch, you're going to have to keep it that way. Because we're not answering to you. We're not doing this qualifications dance. We're not doing this credentials dance. We're not doing this worth dance. If you don't feel comfortable, you're going to have to just sit with that. Because we ain't got nothing to do with your discomfort and your insecurity and your inferiority. That's really what it is as well. How dare this black woman ascend to positions that you could have never, ever, ever dreamed to. So I'm done playing games with this whole we have to prove that we're exceptional and we're extraordinary when we are amongst a sea of very, very mediocre white men because that's the real affirmative action is whiteness. Oh, it is. I mean, I mean, and I, you know, I remember when I, um, when I was at CNN, I filled in for Campbell Brown for two months, um, which was probably in my six years there, the worst experience I had there uh, because I couldn't do me. 
I knew how important the opportunity was, and I never got to do me. But, but here's what, I, what was very interesting about that. I remember uh, that was this uh, white female senior producer. Her name was Claire. Yeah, I call names. Um, and she was a senior on Campbell Brown's show. And I remember we were, we were having a conversation. It was dealing with Michael Vick. And um, we're, we're in a staff meeting, and they were like, okay, we have this panelist, this panelist, this panelist, and this panelist uh, is going to say that Michael Vick doesn't need to get a second shot. And I said, well, have we checked with her? And, and it, was, um, it was Lisa Bloom. And they were like, she's like, Roland, Lisa Bloom is, um, what's, what's that dog group? What's that dog group, you know? The, ASPCA? No. No, the uh, Peter. Oh, uh, Peter. Sorry, Peter. the animal group, Peter. They were like, oh, she's a big supporter of Peter. I said, no, I get that, but have you asked her? She snaps at me. So I turned to the booker. I said, yo, can you, uh, it was Tara. I said, Tara, can you please call Lisa? I want to know exactly where she stands. So she calls Lisa, and Lisa goes, uh, Lisa tells her, if he serves his time, I believe he should get a second chance. And she comes back, we've got a problem. Lisa believes he should get a second chance. And the producer, she just throws me a look. I said, see? That's why I asked. You should check first. I said, because see, that's what y'all do with me. Y'all assume y'all know my position, so therefore you don't run it by me, and then we go on the air, then you're shocked. She was so pissed that I dared challenge her that she went to the producer, executive producer Scott Matthews, and demanded, no, David Dot, off of the show, demanded off of working with me, and they moved her to Anderson Cooper's staff for, the, for those two months. She said, I can't work with him. <laughs> because I dared be a black man to question her. And I remember I was in a meeting with Scott Matthews and he was telling me, we're gonna have an HR problem. I said, no, we don't actually have an HR problem. I said, the problem is your white senior producers because they ain't used to having no black person challenge them. I said, no, the rest of your staff ain't got no problem with me because I walked the floor, I talked to them, I asked them things. I said, they told me, man, we communicated with you more in one day than we talked to Cam Brown in two years. I said, so the real problem is your senior leadership. They don't like someone challenging them. Because, see, what he didn't realize is that, see, they, they just saw me as some black guy they want to put on TV. And I had to remind him, dude, I've been a managing editor of three newspapers where I was the decider of what content ran. I said, so you need to understand, I've run newsrooms. Y'all haven't. And that was the thing. And so what happens is, and then... He was very paternalistic in talking to me, saying how I should really back off and t take how I should take this situation. I said, Scott, let me help you out. I got four revenue streams. Y'all number three. <laughs> and then he started thinking, like, damn, hold up. He making more money? I'm like, yes, at two of my other places. I said, so let's just be real clear. If I leave here, that's just one revenue stream gone. I just move to the next thing. And, and what and and and, th and that was really the fundamental problem that white executives had with me at CNN. It's because I did not bow down to them and would not allow them to talk to me like I was crazy. And what we have to do is we have to get black folks who are in these corporate offices, who are in these places, yes, who are in politics who may be in the law, that we are no longer going to sit here and do a happy dance in front of you and, and we get, oh, let's just strip out all of our blackness just to make you comfortable and, oh, my God, they're just like us. 
See, that's that guess who's coming to dinner stuff. I'm not criticizing Sidney Poitier. It's the state of mind, and that has been problematic for a lot of black people, and that has to end. And we've got to be training our children. You do not, you do not have to do a tap dance. You do not have to be Mr. Bojangles. You do not have to sit here and play these games that they have forced black people to play since 1619. It is not going to continue to happen, even when it comes to being on the Supreme Court. But Ron, let me let me say let me just say this to uh, and what you said earlier about how just Judge Brown Jackson uh, mentioned her uncle and then went immediately to law enforcement. Uh, folks shouldn't speed over that. You should listen very carefully. I think the law is a little different in this regard. I think the age of the heroic intellectual on the bench is over. It's deep mediocrity from here on in, as far as I can see, when it comes to the federal bench uh, in general, and when it comes to the black people on the federal bench in particular. And let me let me see what I mean by that. Prior to the end of Jim Crow, the warrior lawyers, whether it be Constance Baker Motley, whether it be Charles Hamilton Houston, you know, everything, we were at a war, just like Dr. Walker said. I mean, we were in a fight for our existence. So the best and the brightest came out. That's the reason they call Howard University the West Point of the Civil Rights Movement, because they trained those lawyers to kill Jim Crow. When you look at a Polly Murray, Polly Murray couldn't get on the Supreme Court today. She was far too brilliant and opinionated. Now, Ruth Bader Ginsburg could get on using Polly Murray's work. When you look at Title VII and look at some of that work around gender, that's Polly Murray's work. But I, let me fast forward. When we hear uh, Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson... And, and uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was highly criticized because she virtually had no black clerks. Well, and this is where I'm going with Go it. Go right ahead. This is exactly where I'm going, brother. No, no, no. This is very. This is why we got to pay very close attention. Remember, Ketanji Brown Jackson was on the short list when Barack Obama handed the election to the white nationalists by uh, nominating Merrick Garland. If he had nominated her then, we probably wouldn't have been talking about Donald Trump because black women would have come out in even higher numbers. I, I, I think that would have happened. But, but here's the point. Thurgood Marshall didn't hire black clerks. Thurgood Marshall didn't hire one clerk from Howard the whole time he was on the bench and the chief judge at the court that Katanji Brown Jackson is on right now, Spotswood Robinson, who was arguably the most brilliant student ever to come out of Howard Law and a classmate of Thurgood Marshall, could have provided the pipeline. Constance Baker Motley by that time was on the federal bench. So when we look at Thurgood Marshall, who, let's be just quite candid, was not the most brilliant among us, the appointments to the bench are political. As you just finished reading Will Hagen's book, they had to move Clark off the bench to give Thurgood Marshall a shot to get on the bench. Fast forward to Katanji Brown Jackson. She's clearly qualified. She's more qualified than damn near anybody on the court right now. And she went from a public high school to the Ivy League and came out twice. But when you look at Judge Childs, who was being pushed by Jim Clyburn, this is a working class sister as well, but she went to public schools. And this is a problem. You got a double Howard alum, top of the thing, law journal, all, all the top academic accolades, still, still got to play this game because who you pick to be on the bench is going to be decided by politics. And when you said that, she brought up her uncle. This is a this is a brilliant wordsmith. She said that trying to get ahead of the white nationalists is going to try to use her uncle who died years ago against her. And when she used the conjunction, but like you, I cringed. You didn't have to do that. Why did you do that? You did that because you can never be good enough. And when you get in that legal game, trust me, those students who are showing up at law school, they're being trained to use how Katanji Brown Jackson has advanced as the model. Don't say nothing to nobody. Move this way. Make this move. And put yourself in a position where they can't disqualify you. 
I don't, you know, I, I don't. In fact, I even, in fact, I even think Sotomayor kind of snuck through. I think Sotomayor snuck through because she might be the last vestige of somebody who came out of the working class. And look at how Sotomayor uses her position to make not only statements as a as as a, a judge, but as a social figure. I think Justice Sotomayor. We'll see. But I wouldn't be surprised if 10 years from now we were still looking at Sonia Sotomayor as as close as it gets to a social justice presence on the Supreme Court, and, even and, with Justice Brown Jackson. And I wasn't intended to, to, to go deep down this path, uh, but again, as you begin to peel layers back, it is important for people uh, to, to understand. When we talk about, again, uh, Thurgood Marshall, um, a, a brilliant lawyer, absolutely brilliant lawyer, mm -hmm. uh, change agent, uh, alpha brother to three of us sitting here. Yeah. But this is also something that is important. Again, how many, the fact that he didn't, he couldn't pick one Howard University, Howard Law student to be a clerk. Come now, on, brother. Now, I need, I need people to listen. This is the exact same thing we talk about in every single field. What happens, Reese, Larry, and Greg, and people listen to me carefully, is that um, what happens is when we step into power positions, folks, listen to me very carefully. When we step into power positions, we then essentially do this we we, we got to take this off we got to <laughs> we got to remove we got to remove this and so what then happens is we then begin to take on heirs of them hmm. which then we start mm, challenging even more our own who walk into the door and we hold them to a higher standard than we do others because we say, oh, uh, you're not going to embarrass me, so therefore you have to be a super Negro. Which is why, if you look at all the black CEOs that we've had, only one replaced himself with a black CEO, and that was Roger Ferguson, the sister who is now the CEO of the financial company. Think about that. When you look at all these black CEOs we've had, what was their pipeline? Is it similar to NFL head coaches? Mm. Oh, I, I remember, and recently we talked about it. I mean, I remember when people, oh my God, you're going to put that foul-mouthed woman, Reese, on a panel? <laughs> when, 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 when Larry emailed me, he wanted a shot on the panel, I was like, all right, give him a shot. See, why am I saying that? It's because when we get in a position, we should not be thinking like them. We should be saying, right. how can I not hold the door open, yep. but take that son of a bitch off the hinges and rush folks in. Because I don't know how long I'm going to be here. 
I don't know how long we're going to have this power. What I'm damn sure going to do is flood the zone while I'm here. And that requires us, Reese, to learn to stop playing games and not take this off. But literally, if you need to put on that suit, wear this underneath your damn suit. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, we our our presence, I said, is is powerful. But sometimes we get content thinking that our presence alone is enough to represent change. It's enough to represent progress, and we don't do enough to open up the doors, or we just shuffle the same people that are already put on into these spaces. Because that's a lot of it too. You know, a lot of times black folks they want to see you there. Before they like, oh, okay, okay. So you already, you, you, you on the inside. All right, all right. So, so you cool. You got somebody else's cosign instead of bringing new people along. That's why when I hosted your show, Roland, thank you for letting me host it. Or when I host Clay Kane's show, I always make sure, okay, I'm passing the mic to other black women that are not part of the Black Women Cool Kids Club that you see on MSNBC and CNN and that they shuffle around on podcasts, stuff like that. I want to introduce people to new black women and new black men. And, you know, that's, I don't have the, uh, the mic that long, but when I do have it, I make it that a priority. And, you know, one other thing I want to discuss too is when it comes to black politicians, one of the biggest things that I try to communicate is let people fail. We don't let black people fail. We say mm. that black failure means no other black person can ever come after you. It means that let's shut the door on black people. If they don't perform at the level or if they don't win, we want to, you have to sign a blood oath to, to guarantee a black person's going to deliver you record, you know, profit or record winning, uh, record votes, record fundraising and this, that, and the other, just to keep that pipeline going. No, we have to normalize giving black people the same leverage and the same uh, grace and the same space to fail. White folks fail up all the time. We don't get the luxury of failing up. But at least fail and then let somebody else come behind and fail, too. So it shouldn't always be about Black excellence. Sometimes it needs to be about Black failure being okay. And it's not a failure of the race. It's not even a failure of that individual. It's a failure of that circumstance. But let's create the next circumstance through keeping that pipeline open so that Black people can come through and thrive like we are perfectly capable of doing. Because if you want to talk about failure, Larry, tuck a ass... Cancel at CNN, cancel at MSNBC, Ooh. cancel Ooh. at uh, PBS. I mean, his ass been canceled. Uh, he, he he got more shots than anybody black ever got. That's right. And and, and now and then and then of course slides in the Bill O'Reilly's uh, seat, doing the same thing the Bill did. See, this is just. A, but again, what we have to do is resist this temptation that we have to completely alter who we are to make them comfortable. And unfortunately, that's what too many of us have had to do. Final comment before I go to break. Larry, go ahead. No, so I was gonna say, Roland, that, you know, I'm thinking about the, the, the book, The Spook That Set By The Door. I know Dr. Carr, Brother Carr knows that book well, right? So we need to take the information, gather information and take it back to the community, right? You talk about creating a pipeline. Uh, the other thing is you talk about, you know, Tucker and, you know, his failure at CNN, I think Crossfire and some of the other opportunities he's had. But in terms of, I mean, recently talked about, in terms of black folks, listen, we know the margin of error is, is, is small, but you have to give opportunities to other folks and, and strengthen the pipeline. Because, you know, as uh, G Money said, we all we got, right? So we got to make sure we give as many black people as possible a shot, whether, you know, we're talking about, you know, the judiciary or working on Congress or, like I said, giving a brother like me a shot on your show, Roland, which is appreciated. But we got to make sure 
that we understand that we don't we have each other's back. And if we don't make sure we strengthen the pipeline and provide more black people with opportunities, then we're gonna be in the same situation that we're, you know, in terms of some of the challenges, in terms of lack of black folks and and and, and journalism and law, et cetera, 10 years from now that we are now. And I gotta tell you, I'm tired of that. So I think it's important, like I said, for the folks who are watching this, obviously the panel, people on the panel already know what time it is, but for folks, black folks who are watching this, it's important to make sure, like I said, you strengthen that pipeline, you give other black folks a shot and let them shine. Absolutely. All right, folks, gonna go to break. We come back, we're gonna talk about a case uh, out of Houston uh, where uh, the family and the attorney say that his brother was ambushed by the cops. What's going on? We'll break that thing down. Uh, folks, if you want to follow what we do, please download the Black Star Network app. We've already surpassed 30,000 downloads. Our goal is now to get to 50,000 downloads. Uh, and so please, uh, we want to get there as fast as possible. Uh, our goal by the end of 2022 is to be at 100,000 downloads. Uh, please, on every available platform, Apple phone, Android phone, Android TV, Apple TV, Roku, Amazon Fire Stick, uh, Xbox One, Samsung Smart TV. Also, uh, the dollars that you contribute uh, make this show possible. Our goal is to have 20,000 of our fans contribute an average of 50 bucks each year. Uh, and just so you understand, last year, uh, my Aunt Betty, she died uh, in, um, I think Aunt Betty passed away in March or, or April. Uh, and the one thing she did is she told, and I'll put it back up, please. Uh, the one thing she told uh, her daughter, Sharana, she says, uh, even after I die, you gonna give my $50 to Roland's show. And just the other day, my mom sent me a screenshot uh, of, my, uh, of my, my cousin paying her mama $50 uh, to make sure that she supports this show. Uh, and folks, trust me, when you heard what we just talked about, you, we've got to have independent black-owned media. We ain't, ain't no millionaires, billionaires supporting this show like conservative media has, like some other black folks have. Uh, and so you, you absolutely matter. Cash App is dollar sign RM Unfiltered. PayPal is R Martin Unfiltered. Venmo is RM Unfiltered. Zelle is rolling at rollingusmartin.com. Uh, and some of y'all may say, man, why you got a P.O. box of 57196, Washington, D.C., 20037? Because there's a whole bunch of people don't trust uh, digital stuff. And there's some black folks out there, they still send checks and money orders. Uh, and that's how they support the show. And it's, if y'all don't think, y'all think I'm lying, understand in 2020, uh, our fan base contributed 672,000 to this show. Last year, our fan base contributed 827,000 uh, to this show. Uh, and so, uh, again, folks, you, if you give less, give more. We appreciate every single dollar. So please support us in what we do. We'll be back right here on Roller Martin Unfiltered. You read about it in history. Yo, you talk about it, you see it on our side.
but to actually come here and see where this the story of slavery started um, and connecting the dots is just a wow factor for me right now. not see too much, but you're going to feel everything. Just imagine seeing prisons in the yard in the United States. It just doesn't make sense that the richest continent in the world should be inhabited by the poorest people on the globe. Part of that is by design. Um, Self-hatred has been a very tragic part of our whole existence. And I'm not blaming anybody for it, but if you look at most characterizations of being of African descent in the world, it's with these kind of tags. I always say, you're gonna do a lot of shopping, they go, oh, I don't think so. <laughs> and then they come, so they brought limited reserves, and then they spend all the time running to the ATM uh -huh. because they see all these clothes they want and fabric they want. It's overwhelming. I've been here for eight years, and I'm still taking pictures out of my car because it's just, it's a feast for the eyes on any given day. The kind of opportunities you have in Africa, you don't have those in America. The kind of money that you can make in Africa, very few of you would have that opportunity to do that in America. Cordy, who was working for the Congress in the United States, she has started a waste management company. She's the number one here in Ghana now. She looked at dollar sign in trash. There it is. What used to be jeans. Used to be jeans. Is now a huge problem. In Ghana alone, we have a two million unit deficit in housing. Two million. Two million. <laughs> Seven of the 10 fastest growing economies mm -hmm. right now are African nations. Why in the world would we not be trying to figure out how to connect? Because the Lebanese are, yeah, the Chinese are, everybody else is doing it. We will be crazy to do it. And it's for people who look like us. We will be crazy to do it, crazy to do it, crazy to do it. I'm excited. Tomorrow night, uh, we are going to launch our 10-part docu-series on 1619-2019, the year of return. Uh, right here, we'll do it uh, tomorrow at 7.30 p.m. right here on Roland Martin Unfiltered. Trust me, you do not uh, want to miss it. Uh, I've already looked at the first three parts. They are phenomenal, uh, and so it's going to be exciting for, for, you, for you to watch. Uh, we went to New York. We dropped off the hard drive to, to uh, our editor working on our Liberia packages, and so next week, we're going to have the interview with uh, Liberian President George Weah, and so again, now you understand how, uh, again, what happens when you have your own platform. You're not asking someone else for permission for us to cover the stories that absolutely matter. And so you don't want to miss, uh, again, our, our uh, Black Start Network special, The Year of Return. That's tomorrow night, beginning with an air at every Friday for the next 10 weeks right here 
on the Black Star Network. All right, folks, let's go to my hometown of Houston where the family of a 27-year-old man was shot and killed by Houston police during an attempt to execute an arrest warrant. They say the officers never identified themselves before they opened fire. Uh, and so uh, Taft Foley, he's the attorney for uh, Jerry and Lockett's family, says the released police body camera footage of the February 7th shooting supports their belief that uh, Lockett feared for his life in the moments before he was killed. But police say Lockett was the aggressor firing at officers while running from his car, from his car towards the front door. Uh, folks, do we have the video? All right, let, let's roll that, and then we're going to talk to Taft Foley. He's down. He's down. Partner, you good? Partner, get over here. Cover. I got him. I got him. He's down in the doorway. He's down in the doorway. Down the doorway, guys. Hey, he's down. He's down. Come back over here. I got you. Moving. Moving. Everybody good? Yep. I'm going I'm to move, move to Bice. I'm moving to Bice. Yeah. Yep. He, shot at, he shot at us in the Lincoln. All right. He joins us right now from Houston. Uh, so, Taft, uh, so, so set this up for us. What happened here? Why were they pursuing Mr. Lockett? Okay. Well, first off, thank you very much for uh, inviting me on your show. I'm a big fan of you and of the show. Um, Roland Martin is... Roland, Mar I'm sorry, uh, Cherry and Lockett was a graduate of Sam Houston State University. He had a master's degree in criminal justice and was studying for the law school admissions test at the time of this incident. To set it up, Mr. Lockett was accused by a young man with a very long rap sheet of aggravated robbery. The police in their pursuit of him as a robbery suspect, they swore out a warrant for his arrest. The first judge rejected that warrant. The second judge signs off on this warrant. Mr. Lockett gets a phone call at 9.30 in the morning. He explains that he has no idea what these charges are about, that he would like to speak to a lawyer, and that he had planned to turn himself in. Less than an hour later, Cherry and Lockett was dead in the doorway of his house. And if I, if you don't mind, Brother Martin, I'd like to comment on what you just showed. Go ahead. Your show. Yeah, go ahead. You just showed your viewers what's tantamount to a drive-by shooting. You have an unmarked car with a plain-clothed officer inside stick his gun out the door what you don't hear is him saying, stop, police. This is a police officer. Freeze, police. Nothing to that effect. He pulls up in a cherry red car. In Houston, Brother Martin, you know we call that a slab. He pulls up in a cherry red car, sticks his gun out the window, and shots are fired. So hold tight one second. All right, so uh, what I want folks to do is go to the beginning of the video. I want you to cue it up, turn the sound up, and again, I, we, we're going to we're going to we're going to hear exactly uh, what is said 
at the, at, at the beginning of the video, okay? Press play. Sound up. He's down, he's down. Partner, you good? Stop. So, that's the beginning of the video. Guys, roll it back, roll it back. I need people watching this to understand here. Okay, I want you to, now, go to freeze the video, just cut to the video, don't play it. You see right here, folks, the door is closed. Door's closed, window is up, gun is drawn. So obviously, to Taft's point, nothing has been stated. There's no, there's no, uh, no speaker or anything like that they can speak over. Now press play. What is HPD's response, Taft, to nothing being said? No, 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 stop, police, nothing. And to your point, it's an unmarked car. You don't know who the hell this is. Absolutely, that's a very good point, Brother Martin. And the answer is HPZ is silent on that issue. What they did do was they put out a Hollywood edited video and sent it to the general public and expected the general public to accept their version of what happened as the truth. Their problem is that Nowhere on the video does it show our client firing at the police upon arrival at the scene. Nowhere on the video does it show that officer identifying himself as a police officer before he sticks his gun out that window. So this and officer, I this video we're seeing right here, was that the only officer who fired shots? No, there were several officers who fired shots. That This video is the first officer who arrived at the scene. After this officer fires his shot, other officers fired their gun, and Mr. Lockett was shot and killed. He was hit several times by police gunfire. Their narrative in the beginning was that our client walked up to a police car with his gun drawn, shooting at the police, which doesn't make any sense. I want to remind you that this kid had a bachelor's degree, a master's degree in criminal justice, and was studying for the bar exam. First, did he have a gun? Yes, he did, and let me talk about that. He did have a firearm, and as you know, as a resident of Texas, in, in Texas, you can have a lawful license to carry a firearm. And well, exactly I, I, well, actually, didn't they just also change the law? You don't have to have a permit. You don't even need a permit to own a license, to, own a, to have a, a firearm. And to add insult to injury, this brother was sitting in the driveway of his own home. The average citizen in America who had a license or a permit was, who's sitting in the driveway of their own house, they look up, they see a red car pull up on them and a gun being drawn on them. So hold up, hold up, hold up, hold up. Let's, let's, so, so hold up. He's sitting, what, driver's side or passenger side of, in his driveway? He's sitting in the passenger side of the car in his driveway. So what, did he just return from somewhere or was about to go somewhere, do you know? Well, according to the mother, he goes, he sits in his car from time to time. Okay. Uh, he was studying for the LSAT. And every now and then, he would sit in his car, meditate a little bit, read a little bit. Pray. I get it. I mean, look, when I get home, I, I'm, I can finish a phone call. I might be sitting in my car 15 minutes, seeing text messages. So he's right. sitting on the passenger side. He has a gun, which you can't have in Texas. All of a sudden, red car pulls up. 
We already seen it. Nobody says a word. Next thing you know, shots fired. Obviously, he's reacting. Now, uh, guys, show, if y'all have the uh, queued up the other body footage, I want to play this because uh, I'm just trying to under, uh, see what, what angles do we have. Roll this one, then we come back to tapped. Yes, freeze, freeze the video. Okay, Tab, I'm just, how many cops were on the scene? I think the last count is that there were seven police officers on the scene um, of this attempt to secure um, the arrest of our client. Another thing compelling about hold that... Hold on, hold on. A client who they talked to who said, I will turn myself in. Absolutely. And a client who has no criminal record at all whatsoever. Th this young man hadn't been arrested for stealing a pack of gum at a Walmart. Nothing at all whatsoever. And to add insult to injury, Brother Roland... They never attempted to interview him before procuring this warrant. If you live in Bel Air or River Oaks in Houston, Texas, and some known criminal accuses you of committing a crime, the police will interview you. They will sit you down, talk to you, and determine whether or not you committed this before trying to secure a warrant. Wait, 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 wait. No so he's accused, he's accused of theft with a, with, with a weapon? Yes, he was, okay. he was accused of aggravated robbery. Okay, so he's accused of aggravated robbery. They... Okay. I'm just trying to... I'm piecing it together. He's accused of aggravated robbery. They don't interview him. They go get a warrant to arrest him, but it hasn't even been established if he actually did it. Absolutely not. Brother, Brother Martin, the Fourth Amendment requires that a warrant be sworn out based upon probable cause, right? You have to swear out this warrant. A judge has to sign the warrant. There has to be sufficient probable cause for a judge to sign their name on this warrant. Now, remember, the warrant that they were actually executing was their second attempt. They tried the first time to get a warrant, and a judge rejected that warrant. If you look at the two affidavits that the police used to swear out the warrant, they contain conflicting information. One warrant has the name of some guy who has never been identified. Um, if you look at the, 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 the last page on both warrants, you'll see that the name of the affiant, the person who signs it, their signatures don't match on the first warrant and the second warrant. So somebody forged a signature on this warrant, in my opinion, whether it was the first warrant or the second warrant. There's just lots of problems that happen with this case. And one of my, my important issues is that young black men in America are not given the benefit of the doubt with respect to these things. We have to deal with police shootings, but we also have to deal with a corrupt system and, and run the risk of being victim of police officers who are not honest with respect to even the basic police principles, which is swearing out a warrant in a case like this. Larry, um, again, here we are having this conversation two days after Joe Biden stands before Congress and talks about fund the police and how more resources, more training, 
And here in this case right here, uh, Taft, when did the shooting take place? Um, I believe the shooting took place on February 7th. You look at this case right here. I mean, the video clearly shows no attempt whatsoever to say, police, stop, put your hands on nothing. This, this reminds me of Tamir Rice. He comes out the car, guns blazing. When it comes to young black men, they shoot first and they ask questions later. Larry, go ahead. Is not supposed to be rolling, but these stories every time you refresh social media or watch TV, we're seeing the same stories. And as a father of a black male, these stories frighten me beyond belief, right? Now, forget about my own personal safety, but the safety of my son and family members, etc. And I want to know, I'm curious of what elected officials, black elected officials in the metropolitan area, are saying because once again, this. This keeps happening, and it's not like it's weekly, it's daily. And like most people watching this, I'm tired, I'm sick and tired of watching, you know, black folks be killed um, by law enforcement for simply existing. Now, we have another gentleman, we were just talking about the Supreme Court. We have a young black male whose life was snuffed out who possibly could one day could have been, you know, been a nominee for the U.S. Supreme Court. You know, we don't know in terms of what, what his life, what path his life would have taken him down. And once again, we have to mourn the death of a young, another talented, brilliant, young black male who, done, who didn't deserve this. And then we hold, need to hold those, you know, those officers and, and, and even the, obviously the judge who signed the war. We need to hold people responsible because we can't continue to allow this to happen. And you can't talk about democracy or issues about law enforcement, increasing funding for law enforcement when black people are still catching hell in America. Reese, the thing about this that, that, again, that is so galling is all these people who talk about, oh, the NRA, oh, the Second Amendment, I mean... That don't work for black folks if you packing. I mean, you you definitely guaranteed to get shot uh, by cops. And then for them to say here, oh, he was firing at them. I'm sorry. Where's the footage? I, right. Where's the footage? Out of all those cameras, surely one of them would have picked up gunfire coming from him. Uh, Reese, go ahead. Yeah, the thing about it is you don't have black folks out there hunting the way that police hunt black folks. This young man was not waking up deciding he wanted to get into a Guns of Navarone-style shootout with the police. In fact, he was trying to figure out what was going on with the charges and was willing to turn himself in. That does not sound like a person who wants to go off like Cleo and set it off. He was not in the process of robbing a bank. He was not in the process of uh, getting out of a hostage negotiation situation that's going to be hopeless and he was going to never see the outside of life again. He was a person who was probably facing very flimsy charges, as his attorney pointed out. The first warrant was even dismissed, and they probably trumped up some more shit to sit, on, to sit up there and get a second warrant. But this was not a life-or-death court case or charge that he was facing, so there's no logical reason why he would decide to engage in a shootout but for believing that his life is in danger. And I'm telling you, if you roll up to my house in a cherry-red car with your gun out, if I do, if I am strapped, and I ain't gonna say whether I am or not, I'm not gonna incriminate myself on 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 TV. But <laughs> if I were uh, strapped, then you would have we would we we would be in a situation because that looks suspicious in and of itself. So, uh, unfortunately, this young man, his life is lost. But we really have to figure out, you know, why these 
cases involving, we, we just talked last week on your show, Roland, with, uh, uh, you know, another case, Moreno, Mr. Moreno, where 20 cops show up to execute a warrant. What is the situation? Y'all don't have nothing else better to do than show up with five police cars, unmarked cars, 20 cops, guns blazing to execute these warrants. It sounds to me and it looks to me like they already have a preconceived notion about how it's going to turn out. And they're not there to arrest somebody. They're there to kill. Taft, um, look, you got black mayor in Houston, Sylvester Turner. You've got other African-American elected officials. What are political leaders saying in Houston? Well, there's some outrage. Um, the NAACP has sent a statement to the district attorney's office. Um, we have organized with other leaders in the black community. Um, the young man on the DA's task force for civil rights is an African-American uh, who's a very progressive person. I know his family. Um, and so there, there has been some outrage on behalf of the black community. Um, you know, I just, I can't get over the fact that there's two systems of justice in America. You know, one that applies to suburban America and another that applies to black men in our communities, in our neighborhoods. Um, there is not a presumption of innocence when it comes to our children. And as the brother just mentioned on your show, we have to have that talk far too often with our young black men about what to do when the police pull up. We, we have to teach them to act and perform a certain way because there is a life-threatening risk that you will not survive an encounter with the police in America. When you combine the threat of that encounter with the shoddy police work that took place in this case, it makes you even more fearful for your safety, let alone your rights as a black American in this country. Something has got to change. This family is mourning. They will never get this young man back. But what we will do is we will fight with everything that we have in us to get this young man the justice that he deserves in his particular circumstance and situation. Greg, that's the point that I'm always making in these cases. You can't come back from death. No, you can't. Roland, I mean, we've seen it over and over again, and, and, and thank you, Attorney Foley. And again, this is why we support, we have to support Black Star Network. Um, they perfected it. These bastards have perfected it. It's taken them the better part of a century, but they perfected it. Their, their method now, as Rishi said, hunt, wait, when they die, lie. And so, uh, uh, Counselor, I'm thinking about this North, North Belt Crime Suppression Team. They're they organized gangs now, uh, federal and local. Uh, they, they do these task forces. That's their hunting crew. I'm wondering if that can be dismantled, and we have to fight, like I said, with everything we can. Um, the uh, the perfection in these bastards, these hunters, these patterollers, that they have now moved to camouflage. Because if you were going to shoot some deer, you would wear camouflage so the deer don't see you. Their camouflage is called plain clothes and unmarked cars. So now, what can we do to address camouflage in the form of unmarked cars and plain clothes? And uh, the bastard who rolled up with his little manhood in his hand and started letting off shots, I'm assuming that he is on administrative leave, paid or unpaid. What can we do not just to have them lose their jobs, but perhaps drive them out, in fact, of the municipality, perhaps the state? Because there is no justice for someone who has been killed. And like you said, Reese, I mean, now, you know, I got my friends on the left left who will say, you know, I'm not a revolutionary because I advocate for voting. But to underscore the point you made earlier, what can we do to organize people 
so that they can intervene in this kind of policy debate. And voting is a tool by any means necessary. But quite frankly, if the only two we have left when the paddlers show up in unmarked cars and start shooting is to blow their fucking brains out, then quite frankly, we are looking at the end, the disintegration of this society as we know it. So, Counselor, I mean, what's off limits at this point in terms of struggle? Can we disband these suspension, these, 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 uh, these squads, these teams, these task forces? What can we do about the idea that they are in plain clothes and unmarked because that's their camouflage now? And what can we do about just being suspended without pay? What can we do to drive these people not only out of their profession, perhaps out of association with any decent human being? Well, I think the first step would be to criminalize this behavior and to act yeah. on it. Yeah. These officers need to face criminal charges if it's found by a grand jury that they engage in criminal conduct. I'm looking at these two very different signatures on the first warrant and the second warrant. If somebody forged a signature on a warrant, they need to go to jail. Yes, sir. If somebody pulls up on you in an unmarked car and sticks their gun out the window and later you are killed because they didn't announce themselves as a police officer, well, then you need to go to jail. Brother Malcolm once said, I have no compassion for a society that's willing to crush a man and then penalize him for not being able to stand the weight. That's what's happening to brothers and sisters in the black community. We are being crushed by a system that is inherently racist, that is stacked against us, that, that puts us against the odds, where cops can roll up in an unmarked vehicle, stick their gun out the car, shoot first and ask questions later, and then we're penalized for not being able to stand the weight of that same oppression. Now, listen, we don't know who shot first. We know that you can't see our client on that camera shooting a single shot. But even if he did, when the police roll up on you in an unmarked car and you see a plainclothes individual with a gun stuck out the window, at that point, it is fight or flight. Because you don't know who it is. I mean, this I is... We, we just had the, the brother out of Florida. This brother literally has been charged with attempted murder because the cops bust into his home, he had his gun, he fires a warning shot, then fires... He has no idea who the hell is busting into his house. And then they charge him with attempted murder. He's like, I don't know who the hell y'all are just busting through my door. And if he hadn't been a brother, they probably would have called to let him know that they were on the way. They, they might have sat him down if he was Caucasian and invited him some milk and cookies over an interview to find out what, whether or not he was guilty of the crime. In this case, Cherry and Lockett didn't even get the benefit of that. They never called him. They never sent him an email. They never went to his house to determine whether or not his word was more valuable than the, than the word of this known criminal who accused him of aggravated robbery. But what they did do is they made several attempts to procure a warrant that we believe is based upon false, fraudulent, made-up information. They attempted to show up and serve out this warrant without interviewing him. They did not give him the benefit of the doubt, and as a result, this man's mother is putting him in the grave at 26 years old with two degrees mm. a week after he was studying for the LSAT exam to go to law school. Something has got to change. People need to stand up and fight against this type of injustice. We are all sick and tired of being victimized by a system that doesn't have the inherent protections built into it to secure our basic freedom and safety on the streets in America. If this happened to Cherry and Lockett, 
It can happen to your child. Because as we see, as we see, a degree doesn't separate you from being a thug or criminal in the eyes of law enforcement. Two degrees doesn't give you the benefit of a phone call before a police officer shows up and sticks the gun out the window of an unmarked car. There are no protections that separate innocent young black men from the police officers who assume that they're guilty as opposed to innocent and act aggressively and cause them their lives. And the sad thing is, this young man will never be back. He won't go to law school. He won't kiss his daughter on her cheek as he tucks her in at the end of the night. He won't be the world's greatest civil rights lawyer or a prosecutor or, or a civil defense attorney. His life was taken out and he will never have an opportunity to fulfill his true potential. And it's based upon and rooted in the fact that these cops did a horrible job. They pulled up in an unmarked car and shot this man dead. They gave him the dignity of a drive-by shooting. Who are the thugs here? Who are the real criminals here? That's right. Last question. Was his gun tested? Were there any shots fired from that gun? We, any, we don't have... Any, any shell casings uh, recovered? Uh, we, was there... Uh, was an autopsy done on him... Was there any powder burns on his fingers? So we don't know yet. That's the short answer. We don't know whether or not there's casings. We don't know whether or not there's powder burns on his hands. But at the end of the day, Brother so, so Martin... There, there has been an autopsy. Have y'all done an independent autopsy? The family did do an independent autopsy. Okay. They tested for powder burns, and we're waiting for the results of that. Okay. But at the end of the day, Brother Martin, you have to also remember that... Even if he did shoot first. Oh, no, no, no. I understand. I understand. Only, no, I, I totally get that. The only reason I was asking, because if there are no powder burns on his hands and there are no shell casings, what's the lie now? Right. Mm. And if it turns out that these signatures on these two warrants don't match and somebody forged the signature, they didn't have probable cause to be there in the first place. Gotcha. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Taft, certainly keep us abreast uh, of what happened. Uh, if there are going to be uh, any public demonstrations, anything like that happening in Houston, uh, please let us know as well so we can stay on top of this case. And certainly give, our, uh, give our condolences uh, to uh, Mr. Lockett's family. Thank you, Mr. Martin. And uh, you continue to, to speak power to justice, and we admire you and we respect you, and you are a great alpha man. I appreciate it. Thank you, thank you very much. Well, you know, there's two other brothers on here as well, so, uh, <laughs> so uh, we appreciate that. Thank you so very much. You're welcome. Uh, so for folks, uh, y'all understand why we do what we do. Y'all understand. I I'm literally texting some other journalists uh, who are national journalists who are completely unaware of this story. And we keep seeing these stories all over. I told y'all the story when I was at TV One and Brad Samuels, uh, uh, Brad, who was uh, Brad Siegel, I'm sorry, uh, who was uh, who was the president of TV One? He was white. Was questioning me why it seemed like this is the same story every day. And I was like, Yeah, Brad, because black people keep getting shot by cops every day. And when they keep getting shot by black, they keep getting shot by cops. I'm gonna keep covering them. And I literally looked him in his eye, and, and I was standing in his office. I remember he was sitting at his desk, and I was standing up. I said, Why don't you focus on prime time? I'll handle the news show, news show. I had no problem telling that to his face.
And so, y'all, if, if, if we don't provide the space for attorneys like Taft and for these families, the brother out of Florida who we had on last week, uh, the, the, the brother, the Jamaican immigrant who was shot and killed by the four white guys in Pennsylvania, and those guys were never even arrested. Uh, the black woman found dead in her bed uh, on a date with this white guy. He didn't want to call the cops six hours later, and the cops never, it, it never really even uh, analyzed, Bridgeport, Connecticut, never even analyzed uh, the evidence. Let me just be real clear. You ain't seeing these stories consistently on CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, ABC, NBC, CBS, News Nation, uh, even Black News Channel. And so we have to understand. We have to understand. In fact, I wish, uh, Anthony, if you could turn that camera around. Um, if you look at that wall, that, that mural that's in my office, and it's in my office for a reason. It says Black-Owned Black Media Matters. When you see that wall and you see uh, the images of Negro Digest and the Emerge and the Crisis, and when you see uh, Essence and Black Enterprise and Savoy, uh, when you see Chicago Defender and Pittsburgh Courier, Land Daily World, when you see all of that, that's why Black-owned media exists. And that's why we also need you to support what we do. And so uh, I'm going to go to a break. Uh, we're going to say it again, folks. Uh, you'll, you'll see it right there. You, you see those images right there. That's why. Everything that's on there is Black-owned. Now, BT is on there because they used to be Black-owned. But those are the publications that covered our stories. And that's why we are here today, because we have to do exactly what those black folks did over the last uh, 200 plus years. The first black paper said it the best. We wish to tell our, we, we wish uh, to plead our own cause to, to other, too long of others spoken for us. And that was Freedom's Journal, March 16, 1827. Please download the Black Star Network app, folks. This is why we matter. Apple TV, Android TV, Android, uh, Apple phone, a Apple Android phone, Roku, Amazon Fire, Xbox, Samsung. Also, support us with your dollars. Um, I, was, I was just telling you about that story in uh, Will Hager's book, Showdown, where black folks put together their dollars and nickels uh, to help fund the NAACP uh, legal fight to open up the white-only primary, Democratic primaries in Texas in the 1940s. Well, guess what? Your dollars, your $1 and $5, $2, the money orders we've gotten, the people who have given us on these various platforms, all of it helps us to do what we do, not only go to Ghana and go to Liberia, but be able to cover these rallies. And I was very serious. If there's something happening in Houston, we'll go down there and cover that as well. P.O. Box 57196, Washington, D.C., 20037. Cash App is dollar sign RM Unfiltered. PayPal is R Martin Unfiltered. Venmo is RM Unfiltered. Zelle is rolling at rollingsmartin.com. We'll be right back.
pull up a chair, take your seat. The Black Tape with me, Dr. Greg Carr, here on the Black Star Network. Every week, we'll take a deeper dive into the world we're living in. Join the conversation only on the Black Star Network. Hey, I'm Taj. I'm Coco. And I'm Lily. And we're SWV. What's up, y'all? It's Ryan Destiny, and you're watching Roland Martin Unfiltered. Folks, a perfect example of no accountability. The only officer to stand trial connected to the death of Breonna Taylor was today acquitted of all counts of felony wanton endangerment in the botched raid that led to her death. This is what happened today in the courtroom. Under verdict form number one, we, the jury, find the defendant, Brett Hankison, not guilty of wanton endangerment in the first degree under instruction number four, as that applies to Cody Etherton. Verdict form number two, as to Chelsea Nepper, Nepper, we, the jury, find the defendant, Brett Hankison, not guilty of wanton endangerment first degree under instruction number five. As to verdict form number three, wanton endangerment, first degree, as to Zayden F., we, the jury, find the defendant, Brett Hankison, not guilty of wanton endangerment, first degree, under instruction number six. Mr. Hankison, this jury has found you not guilty. This court, therefore, finds um, that you are not guilty of these charges. Um, you are free to go, and your bond will be released. All right. Thank you. The jury deliberated, folks, so for about three hours before reaching the not guilty verdict. Hankerson did not testify in his defense, telling the jury uh, Brianna don't need to die, uh, didn't need to die that night, as explained what he uh, explained what he did and why he did what he did. As I made that corner back out towards the sliding glass door, I get illumination. A, a bright illumination of, from a muzzle flash and the reason I say it's a muzzle flash is because it's a bright illumination the bright flash and with the the loud percussion I get from what sounds to be rifle fire and as I made that corner that um understand folks I'm, I'm not playing all of that uh, understand he was not charged Reese in the shooting of Brianna Taylor it was the bullets that actually went into other apartments that's led to the charge. Right. So the reality is no one has been properly held responsible for the death of Breonna Taylor. Not one and cop. Punk ass, and punk-ass uh, Daniel Cameron, who's the black Republican attorney general there, didn't even present charges to the grand jury about the killing of Breonna Taylor. So there's also that. But, you know, the crazy part about it is, you know, there are, there are, there are these cases that we've seen where the cops get up there and they perform this theater and they cry and they pretend to be, uh, you know, sorry or regretful about the distress and, and the, the injury that they caused. But Hankinson didn't even do that. He said absolutely not when he was asked if he believed he did anything wrong. So, you know, this is par for the course. This continues to open it up and make it be open season, not just to the folks that are actually, you know, directly hit by these bullets, by these cops who come in guns blazing, but by their neighbors. Anybody can get it as long as it means 
that the white police officers, because again, we've shown on this show multiple times, if you're black, if you're Asian, if you're Latino, are they going to convict your ass? Or you have a much higher chance. But as long as these white cops get up there, now I guess he's, he's performing with the tears there. But he was not, he was unrepentant about what he did. But as long as they have the ability to exert their will, particularly over black people, that's perception, even though white folks get killed by the cops all the time too, they're willing to sacrifice a couple of them as long as the white cops continue to do what they do to terrorize black citizens. Larry? You know, Roland, uh, first of all, thank God for your platform, right? Because like we, we talked about the last story, if we, we wouldn't be talking about a lot of these stories. You know, this, this situation would be out of terror. He's right, she shouldn't have been dead. But, you know, once again, we have to talk about in terms of law enforcement and behaviors, particularly when it comes to the deaths of black folks. Listen, these constant stories about black people being killed at the hands of law enforcement is just racial trauma, right? And Roland talked about earlier, since we've been here since 1619, and we're constantly dealing with these same stories. These people, could, any of these individuals that were killed could have been me, could have been a cousin, could have been a neighbor, could have been a pastor, could have been a teacher, a principal, anybody in our community who looks like me. So it, it, it's, it's, it's time for us as a society to put an end for that, the end to this. I don't think that's going to happen, but I'm, I'm, I'm once again sick and tired of reading these stories, sick and tired of having to deal with the racial trauma of, of, these, of these murders. And then once again, um, the bottom line is in terms of the justice system, seeing these individuals walk out of, out, of, out of court and not being held accountable for their actions. Breonna Taylor is one another of, of a number of black folks each year to kill by hand law enforcement. And like I said, it's, it's time that we do something about it, and we can't allow this to continue to happen to the members of our black of the black community. Greg? Yes, I agree. Uh, I agree, Dr. Walker and, and, and Reese. I mean, you know, when we see this guy, Brett Hankerson, with his tears, uh, we understand, again, as we see, we see a pattern here. First of all, they've organized these hunting bands, these subgroups among the pattern rollers, these task forces, these warrant delivering uh, uh, crews, these wrecking crews. And so they're out hunting, they're out doing something that uh, will allow them to shoot. Um, the sister who was looking at you rolling from the wall out of Bell Wells, when she wrote in her reports, lynch law in all its phases, she was very deliberate about that. It doesn't start with the, with the no-knock. It doesn't start with the pistol. Uh, for a guy like Hankerson, it starts in the barbershop. Look at that crew cut. Look at that buzz cut. This is a mentality. It starts with the television shows we grow up on. As Gil Scott Heron said, every channel that I stop on got a different kind of cop on. We've been brainwashed and thinking these are the good guys, and it recruits a certain, uh, shall we say, uh, shriveled type of personality to want to go into this because they want to kill people, because they have a deep insecurity themselves. Lynch law in all its phases. You know, they, he came out and lynched. The, the, the legal definition of lynching involves group action where you dispense what you claim to be justice without any trial. That's what you do, and that's what they're doing. And then finally, uh, they have defense now. The defense in the courts, as you say, Reese, the man said, I did nothing wrong. Why? Because I followed procedure. And even if the jury had convicted him, who knows? Perhaps uh, like Judge Chu in Minnesota who decided and looked at the white woman, Kim Porter, and moved by her tears said, I'm going to give you two years because there really wasn't no human involvement. I can see your heart. We understand that these things cannot be reformed. 
Joe Biden wants to increase funding for the police. Maybe he does, maybe he doesn't. I don't know what's going in the mind of the mummy, but I know this. He's trying to win an election by appealing to a shrinking electorate, and he said what he thought he needed to say, whether he believes it or not. But what you don't understand is that now that you have this organized violence in a form that is legally acceptable, and you're right, Reese, Danny Boy Cameron made sure that he protected his paterolas, you're leaving people with no other choice. As Ice Cube said, I'd rather be judged by 12 than carried by six. Folks, uh, similar to talk about the story out of Mississippi, a police call log reveals that Mississippi police were aware that a three-month-old baby was in the front seat when they opened fire on a vehicle during a May 2020 deadly shootout. Three-month-old uh, Lamelo Parker was killed after a high-speed chase and police shootout involving his father, Eric uh, Smith in May. Smith was a suspect in a Louisiana double homicide. Both Smith and LaMelo Parker died at the scene. So, uh, again, that child, no shot uh, at a life. In Philadelphia, police shoot a 12-year-old kid in the back, killing him. Police believe that Thomas Sedero shot all four shot at uh, four plainclothes officers investigating an incident involving a gun Tuesday night. Officers say someone opened fire on their vehicle, causing them to shoot in return, striking the seventh grader in the back. Philadelphia Police Commissioner Danielle Outlaw tweeted this statement about the incident. Last night, a young child with a gun in their hand purposely fired a weapon at our officers, and by miracle, none of the officers uh, suffered life-threatening injuries. However, the life of a young man was cut tragically short, and we should all be questioning how we as a society have failed him and so many other young people like him. I ask that our community come together and be the community, the village that we were intended to be and that our children need. I assure the public that a fair and thorough investigation will be conducted by our, by our Internal Affairs Division. Per protocol, these officers have been placed on administrative duty pending the outcome of the investigation. The thing here, Reese, is that every time we see one of these stories, sorry, because we're so used to cops on the scene lying, we can't always believe that what they say happened actually happened. Right, because he was shot in the back and he was fleeing. So the math ain't mathing on that. And, you know, as far as the as three-month-old, how does it make sense that you're pursuing somebody who allegedly committed two homicides and you commit two homicides in the process of it, one of which being a child, a, 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 a three-month-old, for Christ's sakes? They they continue to demonstrate their mentality, which is a depraved mentality, because as as much as the victims of that double homicide deserve justice, that three month old did not deserve to be executed because he was in the car with his father or with a man that was alleged to have committed a crime. He had no parts of that. He deserved to live. And the fact that they shot in that car, irrespective of that, LaMelo Parker, and, and, and irrespective of his life, is is beyond disgusting. And, and then the one last thing I'll say is as far as the commissioner, by some miracle, the cops weren't, you know, harmed, but a little boy is dead. That's not a miracle, honey. Don't do that. That You could have saved all that first part. Because it's, it, you, you, something wrong with you to even craft that statement where you start off touting a cop being a miracle and a child being dead. And you use the miracle for the cop part. No. 
Now it sounds wrong. With I, I, I'm just saying, Larry, but look, look I'm seriously. I, I just, the problem is because we've seen too many cases like this, I simply cannot believe what police say happened until after the fact. I, because we've seen it play out different way way too many times. Yeah, first of all, the family, you know, obviously the two homicides and now the, and, and the death of a three-month-old, I, I can't even wrap my mind around that, Roland, to be honest with you. But I want to talk about Philadelphia also. This young young man that was killed, uh, it's very personal because I was 12 years about the same age when I moved to Philadelphia, right? And I have to say that, you know, I, I think, you know, Reese talked about the, the commissioner's outlaw statement is um, it doesn't it doesn't hit hit the mark right in terms of you know trying to bring a community together with this tragic you know tragic um, death of this 12 year old and you're right Roland as someone from Philadelphia you know the city's got a long history of of, of law enforcement not telling the whole truth when it comes to uh, when it comes to these kind of um, deaths so I will call on Commissioner Outlaw and all the black elected officials and other officials in the air in the city to make sure that this is properly investigated and we found out you know what exactly happened. Because once again, uh, shooting a 12-year-old in the back is it, it, not, it's not, it wouldn't be, certainly would be consistent with some kind of, you know, morals we want to have when the individuals who, who walk around a gun every day. Um, so we need a thorough investigation in my hometown. And um, I look forward to finding out what the final report is, but also I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing the NAACP and the various other civil rights organizations in the metropolitan Philadelphia area, what they have to say about this. And Greg, this is the deal. Again, our, our culture has been, oh, we don't believe the police. Cops have lied way too many times, and too many chiefs have believed what the cops on the scene said, and they had to walk it back. So, I, I, I'm sorry, I'm with, I mean, look, I get her whole point. Yes, thankfully, no cop was injured, uh, but we still got to deal with the fact that a 12-year-old kid is dead, shot in the back. What happened? Yeah, that's right. And, and being a police chief is an impossible job these days, particularly in big cities. And you got a sister who was recruited to that job, one of several black women who were considered for the position. And she's in an impossible situation. And you're right, Doc. You know, I lived in Philly for almost 20 years. I consider it my adopted hometown. This happened in South Philly. There's a white boy that got shot. Now, during the days of that punk Frank Rizzo, that would never have happened. South Philly, they shooting white boys in South Philly, the police. Can you imagine that? Well, they don't even give you a damn ticket for parking in the middle of the damn street. You know how that is. Like, but 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 what's fascinating, again, we see, and, and, and Roland, I promise you, I, I almost felt like today you curated all these stories with these common themes. This was a task force. What the hell is a social media gun task force where you monitor social media, and if there's a report of a gun, you send the cops out in, next phase, they're camouflaged, which is plain clothes. They sitting in plain clothes, and then they say, uh, this guy over here looks like uh, somebody who uh, fits the description of what we saw on social media. So they arrest a 17-year-old and let him go. They ain't say, wait, wait, is that the guy? What, what did the 12-year-old have? These task forces, these subsets, and you know who gets recruited to these task forces. These, these cats who can't wait to unhitch their trigger. Nobody cam footage in this. And then, and then when we look at Biloxi, oh, they couldn't wait. Who all was involved in this chase? Who was involved? The Harrison County Sheriff's Office, the Hancock County Sheriff's Office, the Louisiana State Police, the East Baton Rouge Sheriff's Office, the Gulfport Police Department, the Mississippi Highway Patrol, and the U.S. Marshals, the worst of them all. They ganged up, and then they're going to say this boy who killed this child's mother and her nephew 
indefensible. They saying they're using the baby as a human shield. Well, I don't give a damn if he was using the baby as a human shield. You know why you shot in that car? Because there were no humans involved. And in y'all's mind, you just eliminating a four-month-old threat because he, before he get old enough to shoot back at you. These people are beneath reform. They, they're beyond reform. This thing has to be dismantled at this point. And if you don't understand that, Joe Biden, well, God bless you. Because guess what? People are going to start taking stuff in their own hands. We, I mean, I'm not saying that because I want that to happen. I'm saying it because you're leaving people with no choices. Yep. Indeed. All right, folks, going to go to a quick break. We'll be back to finish out the show. You're watching Roland Martin on the Filter on the Black Star Network. Hey, what's up, y'all? It's your boy, Jacob Lattimore, and you're now watching Roland Martin right now. Eee. All right, folks, uh, let's talk about uh, what happens when you kill a whole bunch of people, and all you do is pay a settlement to get out of it. The Sackler family, they paid $6 billion uh, in a civil settlement related to Purdue Pharma's role in the opioid epidemic. Connecticut led the way uh, in the multi-state negotiations. The state's attorney general, William Tong, says the money will help fight the epidemic and the families who lost loved ones. Tong says this agreement does not release the Sacklers from potential criminal liability in the future. The Sackler family founded Purdue Pharma, the maker of OxyContin. As part of the agreement, institutions can remove their name from buildings as well as scholarships. The thing about this story uh, that is quite unique, um, 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 uh, Larry, is that we're talking about a company that aggressively marketed these drugs, knowing full well uh, the impact. When you read some of these stories, when you read uh, how um, uh, the hundreds of thousands of pills were being sent to certain cities that far exceed the number of people living there, uh, how they were targeting doctors. I mean, they, this company literally created a marketing campaign that has killed thousands of Americans, and they get to write a check. Yeah, you know, you know, $6 billion is not enough money for the lives, lives they've ruined, ruined. And let's keep in mind, the folks, they're still dealing with addiction, right? So even long after this, this money is spent, 
those folks will still be doing it, dealing with addiction. Let me also add, when you talk about the Sacra family, when you, when you go to museums and various other, uh, go to city from city to city, I see their name everywhere. It should be removed from all scholarships, as you said. Any museums or any other entity that, you know, took money from the family, it should be removed and they should return the money. But the damage that it did to this community, to the family, to this country, to the community, and all the, like I said, all the folks that, you know, are nameless that we don't know anything about that lost their lives because of addiction, and all those who are still struggling with addiction, um, while I'm quite sure for the, you know, attorney general in terms of getting this settlement, it, it, it certainly is, a, is a, re a relief for him. But generally speaking, you're right, Marlon, so many thousands of people have lost their lives. And like I said, many of those folks are still doing, dealing with addiction are still alive. And $6 billion is not enough. Um, in fact, they should have to every single dime they've ever made um, from, you know, selling, getting into you know, this glossy marketing um, campaigns they use to get physicians to market, to give these pills to, to um, you know, um, citizens that didn't know that they would become addicted and some lost their lives, lost their families, lost their jobs, lost their pensions, and the long-term, you know, impact is not even, it doesn't even equate to $6 billion. Um, uh, Reese, I'm sitting here reading the New York Times story here, uh, and it's, it's quite interesting uh, reading, reading this story. Uh, and it says that um, as the opioid crisis began to wreak havoc across the country, two branches of the Sackler family, whose forebears, along with another branch, founded the privately owned company in the 1950s, presided in various leadership roles at Purdue in the last 20 years. The company worked with a cadre of doctors who spoke at medical conferences, praising OxyContin for being safe and effective. Though many other opioids soon crowded the market, OxyContin stood out for the no-holes-barred aggressiveness of Purdue's sales force and the market dominance of the drug. 500,000 Americans have died as a result of opioid overdoses since the 1990s. They made billions. Essentially, these are serial killers who only have to write a check. Yeah, and how much money do you need to make? Like, you, you, you make so much money that you, the check that you're cutting is $6 billion. And trust me, they wouldn't be cutting a $6 billion check or agree to a $6 billion settlement if it wasn't a little bit of skin off their back. It's, it's excessive. You know, drugs really kind of sell themselves because don't nobody want to be in pain anyway. So the fact that they went this aggressively and they had to inundate the market and create this false demand for it is so depraved and so unconscionable. And there were real life consequences to it. But what I will say on the other hand is, where is the settlement from the CIA for pumping crack in the communities? Because all we got is a bunch of crack cocaine disparities and prison sentences and lives ruined as well. So there may, I don't know, maybe a trillion dollars. They need to cut that check. If we're talking about opioid crises and how it's devastated, addiction has devastated fam American families, let's talk about that part as well. The thing here, Greg, that people have to understand is that when we have this conversation, uh, what are we talking about? We're literally talking about um, companies, when they are targeted, they just simply write checks. You look at when J.P. Morgan got busted for their practices, oh, okay, we'll write a check. And here's the deal people don't realize. When these companies, when these companies do these settlements with the federal government and they write a check, it's a tax write-off. Yes. Hmm. It's a tax write-off. The legal bills and the settlement is a tax write-off. That's right. That's right. That's right, Roland, which means we end up funding it. 
or we end up suffering in terms of not having public dollars available for education, not having public dollars available to put safety nets in place. And as you say, Reese, when it comes to the Sacklers, uh, between 2008 and 2017, they pulled close to $11 billion out of Purdue Pharma beyond the scope of being able to attack. One of the reasons that the, the, uh, the Connecticut Attorney General did not want to settle this on these terms, he said, quote, they will be able to fund this uh, this little dent, as you said, this little skin, they'll be able to fund it through their average investment returns alone. Mm. They've got until 2030 to pay this off. Not only are they not going to miss any money, they are going to make that back long before 2030. This is nothing for them. And to underscore what you said, Dr. Walker, you know, they're probably more worried about prestige right here in D.C. at the Smithsonian, the Asian, Amer the Asian Museum across from the National Museum of African Art. That was the Sackler Museum. Well, guess what? They took all the signs down, except their name is still chiseled in the stone above the museum. I saw it last week when I was down there. They're not going to miss this money. And as you said, the money they did pay, which they'll be able to get back on their average return on investment without doing anything, that money... Tax write-off means the burden shifts to the very people, including all the people whose families were victimized, to make up for that if they want to have any services from the government. This is how capitalism works. The rich truly are different. Indeed. Folks, uh, found two stories Wednesday. Vice President Kamala Harris and Labor Secretary Marty Walsh visited Durham, North Carolina to highlight the administration's work to empower unions and boost the job market. Vice President Harris took a tour of Durham Technical Community College where she praised the diversity of American workers. See the potential for growth in terms of the diversity, in terms of the inclusion, in terms of America's workforce and our future. And I met some of those great stars and leaders today who I believe are all part of a new era of the American labor movement. All right, folks, uh, and you know, she's a Howard University graduate and speaking of Howard University and the battle of uh, the, who's the real HU, Howard and Hampton will win $100,000 each from Peanuts Worldwide LLC. They're giving those universities that for their endowment. Peanuts Worldwide has launched the Armstrong Project. It will provide funds for scholarships, mentorships, and internships for students studying arts, communications, animation, or entertainment. The project honors Robin Franklin Armstrong, the cartoonist who inspired the first African-American character in the Peanuts comics. So certainly uh, congratulations uh, to uh, both of those universities. All right, folks, uh, that is um, it for us. I certainly appreciate it. Uh, glad to have you here, uh, Reese, Greg, uh, Larry as well. Uh, Greg, uh, this was one of the outfits, Greg, that uh, I was given uh, in Liberia. Uh, so I love it, that, brother. And it was, it was, it was, it was it, it's maroon and black, too, so it's in, the, it's in Texas A&M colors. Oh. So, you know, I can go ahead and rock that when I go to university, so. Yes, sir. Uh, <laughs> yes, sir. And it's old school. I mean, the, the, that kind of fabric there, that's that heavy fabric. I was going to ask you about that, so that's one of the ones they gave you. Yeah, yeah. So this is one of the pieces they gave me. And so uh, I have several others, and so we'll be, uh, I'll be rocking those again. And of course, uh, folks, uh, again, as I said, next week uh, we're going to be uh, running uh, some of the pieces that we did in Liberia. But tomorrow, Thank you uh, very much. we're going to have the, uh, the docuseries, the first part of the docuseries 
of, uh, of course, uh, when we were in Ghana. Folks, we had some amazing interviews. You do not, trust me, you do not want to miss uh, what we have put together uh, for, uh, for this. It's going to be 10 parts. We're going to air a new, new episode every single Friday. You don't want to miss that. Also, uh, y'all, you got to watch the content we're doing on uh, Black Star Network. I mean, Deborah Owens' show, Get Wealthy, where we're dealing with financial issues. Uh, you know, there was a meme that went around saying uh, black folks uh, and, you know, uh, black folks um, uh, with uh, resources and talking about we're the only people, we're teaching people about the Bible. But look, we're teaching people about financial literacy. So with her show uh, about wellness with Dr. Jackie Hood Martin, Greg's show, of course, uh, The Black Table, uh, Faraji Muhammad's daily show, uh, his daily uh, in the culture, and of course, Rolling with Roland. So a fantastic interview with my man, Jeffrey Osborne. You don't want to miss that as well. So we got some great stuff uh, uh, providing for you every single uh, week right here uh, on the Black Star Network. And so uh, we are creating something that is fantastic fantastic that's amazing uh, that other people simply are not doing your support is important to do so so first we need y'all to download the app there's a bunch of y'all watching on facebook and instagram and twitter and uh, on youtube so please download the black star network app uh, of course all platforms out there apple phone android phone android tv apple tv roku amazon fire tv xbox one samsung and of course uh, you can also please your dollars matter so please support us uh, as well of course uh, and that is uh you can send checks and money orders to p.o box 57196 washington dc 20037 and of course cash app is dollar sign rm unfiltered paypal is r martin unfiltered venmo is rm unfiltered zell is rolling at rollingismartin.com hey if y'all are watching at 9 25 eastern i'm going to be on dan abram's show which is on news nation uh we're talking about president biden's comments on fund the police dan is a huge supporter of the police uh, and so we're going to be discussing uh this whole issue of defund the police uh and so trust me y'all don't want to miss this conversation uh y'all know i'm going to bring the funk guaranteed so just check your local listings uh to look up news in the nation uh, dan abrams show so i'll be on at 9 25 eastern and so trust me you don't want to miss it and so we'll be rolling on it as well uh so we'll uh show you uh, some of that tomorrow right here on roland martin unfiltered all right folks until then I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts.